My guest this week has been a writer, a director, and a producer for over 45 years in television and the movies. He started out in the mid-70s on some of the most successful shows on television, such as Mork and Mindy, The Jeffersons, and penned some classic episodes of Happy Days. He then became a director in the early 90s and directed films that earned over $2 billion and starred such talent as Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Goodman, John Ritter, Lorraine Newman, Rick Moranis, Gilbert Gottfried, and Elizabeth Taylor. He's also a TV historian in the area of show-related toys, and his new book, My Life in Toys, deals with his six decades of collecting. I am excited to talk to Mr. Brian Levan. Hello. Nice to be anywhere. <laughs> okay. First, I want to talk about your book. So do you remember the first toy or piece of memorabilia that you were given as a gift from a TV show? Wow. Um, uh, yes, actually. Uh, my second job uh, was as a, I was listed as a researcher, but I was a writer on a five-day NBC daytime program called Noonday. And it was an epic failure, and no one ever wrote anything new. David Steinberg just kind of pulled old stuff out, and it was kind of an embarrassing thing for everyone involved. However, it was an epic failure. However, I do still now have the beautiful orange notebook, three-ring notebook with, with all the scripts from the shows that didn't work. Okay. I meant, like, as a kid, did you get, like, a toy oh, from a... As a kid, as a kid, what, uh, you know, we, we, we grew up in a culture where every cereal box said, collect all five, where, 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 where every, every jar of Welch's grape juice, when you finished it, you had a howdy-doody glass. <laughs> you know, we were trained, we were trained to collect and, and frequent the products that were that were advertised on and featured the characters that we love from TV. Superman had a deal with Kellogg's, while Bill Hickok had a deal with Kellogg's. You know, uh, and Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear owned owned Kellogg's uh, in, in the late '50s into the '60s. You know, they were featured on the boxes. Uh, you know, Yogi Bear was on the on the on the cover of okay cereal and and there was a million send away for prizes just how many how many how many proof of purchase coupons did you need five so if your mom had to buy five (laughs) boxes of something in order to get you a 29 cent toy that you paid an equal amount in shipping and handling for (laughs) and and i of course was an avid consumer and, and I have reacquired some of those pieces uh, uh, that, that you touched as a child that brought you so much enjoyment and discovery. And, and, and that kind of feeling still radiates in my collecting today. And in doing the book, I realized how much of my collecting and, and my career sprouted from the things that I was interested in and watched as a kid. And, and, and I really believe that, that, you know, my, my first sentence was a bastardization of howdy doody's opening. Say kids, what time is it? My first literally recorded in my baby book, say kids, what time he is. Uh, I have, I have an actual card from my nursery school teacher, uh, to, to my mother, a, a television producer, like Sal Hurok, 
uh, we used to do spectaculars in, in the early 50s and stuff. So, so the die was pretty much cast there. And really, uh, when I was 20, 21, and my, my wife uh, uh, moved in, and we, we started collecting, starting with salt and pepper shakers. And, and, and you know, they were plentiful. They were uh, millions of them. And, and it built a collection pretty soon. Okay, now you got, now you got the Mr. Peanut salt and pepper, pepper shakers. And now you say, you know, I want more Mr. Peanut. And these things all grow exponentially. And, and I'm an acquirer. There are good collectors and, and collectors. I am not a collector who is primarily interested in condition, in original box, and things like that. I see something and I want to have it. I, I, I want uh, the, the greatest variety of things, of a character, of a, of a group of characters that, that I can get. And also, oh, it's very much impulse by it. You see it, you want it, you pursue it. You know, you scroll through, you know, through thousands and thousands of things on eBay and all of a sudden you see, aha, there it is. And, and you zero in. And what I've tried to do in the book is try to harness the love and enthusiasm that I feel for the possessions that I've owned, that I have acquired, that have been an inspiration to me, that has so many of them relate to the assignments I've had. You know, it's very strange to think that when you're in kindergarten, you barely just turned five years old, and and a month later you see Leave It to Beaver on TV, that you would you would 30 years later revive it have it have it be a highly successful long-running revival that you would own every licensed toy <laughs> that they did and that you would be such good friends with the people of Mayfield that you would spend years and years with them and end up speaking at their funerals and, and the Flintstones, which uh, I saw in the fall of, of third grade uh, and loved it, recognized its uniqueness. And, and when I began to collect beyond it, uh, all right, so the Mr. Peanut leads to, to this. And then we're back into Howdy Doody, the Flintstones, all the things you used to watch and collect as, as a kid and comics and things and all, all the superheroes, Batman and Superman, although I'm much more of a Superman collector than Batman. And, and, and I think I own the only Marvel pieces I own, I think, are a few Hulks that, that seem to fit in well in the Munsters collection. But, but, but um, you know, it, it, here, here you are eight years old, and you don't realize that you're going to spend years of your life trying to replicate that world in three dimensions and, and make a faithful and entertaining long form version of it and that you would be working beside Steven Spielberg to accomplish it, and that it would then miraculously uh, grow an entirely new Flintstones toy line. <laughs> and, and I can't forget that I think the real turning point in my meeting initially with Steven Spielberg and Kathy Kennedy, then of Amblin, now uh, of Lucasfilm, was when I showed a Polaroid, and that's how long ago this is, of my 30 or 40 pieces of Flintstones. Uh, toys and his eyes behind his little little dark glasses lit up and uh, he looked at me a little differently after that uh, and, and and you know Stephen is a collector uh, uh, 
not not really of toys, but but of many things, the things that things that are meaningful to him. The sled, right. <laughs> uh, Rosebud from Citizen Kane, the the original handwritten lyrics to When You Wish Upon a Star <laughs> in the hallway outside his office. Uh, you know, he, he and and pinball machines and things, you know, and and video games. So so, you know, these things are so intertwined. And uh, that Happy Days, where I was basically, I wrote, I had my first meeting on Happy Days uh, when I was. I believe still 22 years old uh, and uh, barely 20, still barely 22 years old. And it would be uh, uh, nine years later when I would leave uh, the studio there for, for the last time really. And in between uh, I grew uh, as an artist tremendously working in, in, in such an amazing place. Uh, Gary Marshall was a unique individual and producer who, who a lot of, a lot of things run in show business on friction and challenging people, you know, in different ways. And, and Gary Marshall had a different approach. It was a humanistic, it was gentle, it was fun. He, 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 he nurtured close ties between people and within the organization and it made it very distinctive place to learn my craft mature <laughs> i was i was i was a little boy when i look at my students and several of whom were older than i was when i first started writing on network tv uh and and and, and i look back at, at my actions and things and, and and you know they everybody referred to me as the kid and indeed, I was more like like an eleven-year-old in a candy shop than a professional writer. Uh, you know, and uh, Happy Days was so unique. I mean, several days a week during lunch, we'd play basketball with the cast, and uh, you know, meeting you know, Ron and, and and Walter von Huhn, dialogue coach, and Carrie Schumann, a uh, 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 stand-in and stuff against the the writing and production staff. You know, and you'd spend the next three hours trying to write while you're sweating profusely. Uh, and then what, you know, it was part of the happy days traveling softball team, all these things, which, which bonded people together and, 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 you know, of course the, it all emanated from Gary, from Ron, Mar Ron Howard, I'm sorry. Ron Howard, you know, is, is an amazing individual and his quiet leadership and even temperament, uh, guided the, the, the personality of, of the stage and the series. And it was a great matchup between the two who had come from similar backgrounds. You know, Ron Howard was on, was on Andy Griffith for, for eight years, which was a Sheldon Leonard and Danny Thomas production. And Gary Marshall uh, had cut his teeth working for Sheldon Leonard uh, on other series. I think his first one was the Bill Dana show. And of course the Sheldon Leonard, Carl Reiner, co-production of the Dick Van Dyke show where, where Gary Marshall was a story editor and, and, you know, really, really turned into a, into a force. Everyone who worked on that show became a force in the industry, really. Well, you answered a whole bunch of questions. Where would you put weirdly and creepella gruesome? Would they be in the, <laughs> would they, they be the Flintstones? Would they be the monster? Well, you know, uh, 
let, let Hannah and Barbera, this, despite the fact that they always claim that like Fred and Barney were uh, descended from Laurel and Hardy and not the honeymooners, <laughs> I, I would beg to differ. They were, they were capable thieves, you know? Uh, many of their characters, Huckleberry Hound was basically an offshoot of Buster Keaton. Uh, you know, the Yogi Bear, Pixie and Dixie, uh, Tom and Jerry, these are all stories about animals trying to survive by getting their next meal. <laughs> and that to me is the formula of so many of Chaplin's works, modern times, especially that is built entirely on the on man feeding himself. <laughs> And and stealing, you know, who was it that had Jimmy? Someone exit Snagglepuss. Uh, they stole that character from somewhere. Somebody else was uh, was oh, Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy was uh, was was definitely they were doing Jimmy Jimmy Durante. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but when it came to to a time when uh, when the Adams family, when the Munsters, my favorite Martian, when these kind of High concept, I dream of genie shows were were in prime time. They found a way to channel it into their animated work. And for those who don't know the gruesomes, it was basically Morticia and Gomez reimagined in Hanna Barbera style and stuck in the Stone Age. I actually uh, uh, proposed uh, to uh, that, that we try and do that as a uh, as a series uh, for the Cartoon Network. <laughs> And what were, what were your feelings about the Great Gazoo? Uh, I all right. So when I was on Happy Days, I thought it was a terrible idea to add a spaceman to <laughs> to to the show, and uh, and of course it ended up being a godsend for everybody involved. Um, however, however, uh, the same kind of feelings I, I I did not share for Gazoo. I liked Gazoo. I thought Gazoo was funny. I thought that, you know, he was going, you know, someone had to give us fire. I don't, I don't think Fred and Barney and these guys down at the lodge came up with that on their own. <laughs> there had to be some alien technology somewhere. Uh, and, and I loved Harvey Corman, um, who was the voice of the great Gazoo originally and who, and who we recruited to the first Flintstones film, a key character, uh, uh, and gave the voice to the uh, animatronic puppetry wizardry uh, of the Henson Creature Shop in London, which unfortunately no longer exists. Brilliant, brilliant people. Um, and then we got to, in Viva Rock Vegas, we made Gazoo a character. And to do it live action was a very tricky thing, and we figured out how to do it by just by making certain parts of his body much bigger, <laughs> like the helmet and his feet giant. Uh, and then, and then actually in the computer, chopping them up and adjusting different sizes and, and then putting them back together, kind of like a, a, a Mr. Potato head, uh, in effect. And for the reading of that, Harvey Corman came in and we had a great time with him playing Gazoo again. And, and because Harvey was playing a different role in the film, that of Wilma's uh, father, Colonel Slaghoople. We recruited one of the most talented men in the world, Mr. Alan Cumming, to play not only the great Gazoo, uh, but also to play in the film 
the rock and roll star Mick Jagged of the Stones, and uh, in much different wardrobe and with facial giant lip prosthetics and things, and uh, and I don't know I know very few people who could have met the demands of of doing all the singing and being hung on wires for days on end, being manipulated in, in, in directions and, and be on, literally hung for hours in a, in a very uncomfortable uh, way and, and give a brilliant, brilliant performance. Uh, and, and I think that that was kind of overlooked in Viva Rock Vegas. I think it was, you know, uh, uh, when we showed Spielberg, uh, uh, our first test of Gazoo. He said, how did you do that? Uh, is that a puppet? And we go, no. <laughs> uh, we figured out something unique, and we thought it worked very well. Is there things on a holy grail list for you that you still want that you haven't acquired yet? In, in toys or in life? <laughs> in, in toys. In toys. <laughs> you know, there. I, I, I was just saying that... Um, since since completing the book and assembling the 1100 plus photos uh in the book and trying to convey my excitement and and the way i look at them and to create energy on a page i'm used to creating uh using actors using cameras using music sound effects to 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 elevate an experience and and bring what people are experiencing to a boil. And, and I've tried my damnedest to do that on the page as well and find ways to make the combinations and, and action and, and the photography by my, my, my brother-in-law is one of the top commercial photographers in the country, uh, Joe Pellegrini, uh, the brilliant, unique photography. You've never seen a, a, book like this because you've never seen toys photographed like they were fine art and and, and that's the way we, we, we've presented them to you um but and, and that was a challenge but in completing that work and it's taken 11 years from from the first sketches of the cover to the release by g editions on september 13th 2022 uh <laughs> It's, it's been quite a haul, and I would say that my appetite, it, uh, you know, there'll always be things I see that I'd like to get, and then I do, I, do I need it? I don't have any more room, for starters. I mean, my new joke is, I don't have room for another olive oil. Uh, uh, seriously, my shelves are packed, uh, things are getting shuttled into storage, and, and the appetite has decreased. I think that completing the book was kind of, in many ways, the end of the collecting journey that, you know, <laughs> that, that really began in earnest a half a century ago. And, and there's still things I want and would love to have, but I don't need them the way I used to. My needs have been more <laughs> than fulfilled in, in, in that respect. And, and I was lucky that for a long time, I was doing very nicely, and 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 like I said, <laughs> it doesn't cost as much, you know. Uh, it, it's true, and 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 I say this not because I'm cheap, but many of the things I treasure the most are objects 
that were obviously handled many, many, many times. Objects that, that were often, uh, you know, loved. <laughs> and and they've fallen into my hands. And we'll try and love them equally. Yeah, I, did, I don't have a collection of toys. Um, I, Why I, not? <laughs> um, honestly, I always try to collect scripts or other things. Um, I have a stapler that my grandfather gave me because he worked in um, Rockefeller Center in the mail, the mail room under where they did The Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live. He's got a stapler that was used on The Tonight Show set. <laughs> I have a crew jacket from the TV show Fridays. Sure, sure. Larry David was on that. Yeah, and um, but the thing I, I would I would buy this if I found it. I had a... Um, Big wheel with the Dukes of Hazard. Oh well, that, that's that's a pretty good toy. That's a pretty good toy. You should get that one back. Yeah, because when I finally found it, because I didn't use it after I was like you know grown up, and but when my parents moved and I, it was just disintegrated. You found it. You got it. It was Great. disintegrated. It was not. Oh, oh well, I'm sure. Go to eBay tonight. You'll find one. <laughs> and then I had um. Larry Strother, who I think he wrote a couple of um, Happy Days in the last year. Oh, Larry Strother, yes. Oh, I thought you meant, uh, uh, I, was, I was thinking of the guy from F Troop, okay. Oh, Larry Storch? No. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, yeah, Larry Strother, yeah. Oh, you got stuff from him? He he, he sent to me a, um, his, uh, Night Court and Happy Days are my two favorite shows. He sent to me a script of his, he's like, my kids don't want this stuff. So he sent to me his script with his notes, which I thought was awesome. All right, what do you want to talk about now? You wrote the classic Happy Days episode where Richie and Fonz go to a college dorm to meet women. Yes. Were you asked to create Lori Beth as a character because they hired Linda Goodfriend? No. Um, here we go. So uh, the year before, as I told you, I, I wrote my first script. It was not very good at all. And, and but... They saw, they saw that I was earnest and, and, and had potential, uh, but I lacked seasoning. And so they brought me in during the week, the show, uh, which was AKA the Fonz, where, where, where uh, Officer Kirk is elevated to Captain Kirk and, intentionally uh, and, and uh, vows to throw all the hoods out of Milwaukee, including Fonzie. And it set up a, a, a really good con conflict uh, for the family and uh, for Fonzie. Uh, and, and it worked really well. But for me, getting inside and seeing how the show was made, the attention to detail that went into every word, piece of punctuation and business that you saw, uh, it was a, a, a postgraduate experience crammed in, into just hours. But the next year, the fifth season, they invited me back to pitch stories again. I sold them again the first story I pitched, which was, which I, uh, since I knew that they were going on to college, I said it was me. It was actually a friend of mine who, and now we're going back to the fall of 1970 here when you still had male and female dorms and hours in which people could be there and things like that. And, and, and a friend of mine got caught in, in a girl's room after curf curfew 
and uh, and he did not like Richie and Fonzie did try to escape mm-hmm. by donning uh, uh, nightgowns and nightcaps. You know, look like Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother, <laughs> in essence. Um, but he stayed the night, and you know, uh, and was taking a leak out the window. You know, <laughs> uh, and 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 that seemed like a great story. So in order to get into the dorm, he'd have to meet women. I was very fond of a third season show, uh, one that Lowell produced. I don't remember who, who, who wrote it, but Fonzie takes Richie to the supermarket to pick up women. <laughs> and I love that idea. And so we updated that and Fonzie uh, took Richie to the library to meet a girl. Right. That actually... Was a Lowell and Mark Roth, and that's the one that introduced the Vernon Charlie. No, 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 was it? Yeah, because oh, that yeah. it does. Thing. You're right. Sure right. things. Okay, very good, very good. Ep- episode ten, season three. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to try to do that. I, oh, I I know that. Uh, I know that, and we can talk about why I know that in just a little bit. But in, in, in any case, um, uh, I I grew as a as a writer so much from that experience when given the opportunity to prove what I'd learned on paper, I wrote what remains uh, one of the best first drafts I've done, you know, in the last 48 years. Um, So much so that so much of it, so much of it went from, is is what's the same. And that was very unusual for anybody's script on, on that show or any show. Uh, for that matter, but it was uh, it was received so well that they asked me to join the staff uh, at two hundred dollars a week, <laughs> and they put me in a in a uh, they converted closet with no windows <laughs> and very bad light, and I was only allowed out a couple of weeks later when another writer who they had teamed contractually with Fred Fox Jr. Uh, never showed up. Uh, I think is a, a victim of, of, of drug problems, <laughs> and so in order to fill the card, uh, they put me up to three hundred a week, and I became a story editor uh, with Fred Fox, and and, and we would uh, become and remain uh, wonderful friends, and and, uh, and so I was on the fifth season and eighteen shows in the sixth season. Uh, and then I left with producer Bob Brunner and uh, Laverne and Shirley producer Arthur Silver. Levitt, he and I had written a, a, a pilot, rewritten a pilot for Paramount that Brunner and Silver were producing called Brothers and Sisters. Surprisingly, it, it was made. Lowell Gans directed it, his first directing job with uh, Chris Lemon, Jack Lemon's son, and Mary Frances Crosby. Ben Crosby's daughter in the cast with, with other, uh, uh, some good, some bad people. Um, uh, and Mindy, uh, who got themselves into some serious uh, creative and ratings trouble. Uh, and then I came back to Happy Days. Uh, and Fox and I ran the show, the final two seasons, 10 and 11. And uh, it was, even though I, I contributed to the show and continued to plan the baseball team throughout then, it was, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful place uh, to, to ply your craft, to have every week to have such appreciative 
audiences have such a happy uh, uh, cast uh, who loved each other and doing what they what they did. And now to commemorate that, Happy Days debuted, I believe it was January 14, 1974. Fred Fox and I currently have a proposal for a new book, a follow-up uh, from uh, My Life and Toys, uh, which is called Currently 50 Years of Happy Days and examines uh, all 11 seasons, uh, how the show began as a pilot called uh, New Family in Town, how it, how it happened, how it evolved. And uh, uh, we're very excited. Henry Winkler is very excited about it and agreed to write the foreword. And, uh, and Ron and Don uh, uh, have seen the book. And we've spoken with several people behind the scenes, Bill Bickley, Lowell Gans, and we sat down and had nice talks with Mary and Ronnie Hallen. Gary Marshall's sister is also the associate producer and later co-producer of the series. And... Uh, and we're off and running on that. And and it's been great to relive so many uh, memories of, of the place that launched and continues to be a huge influence on my career and life. And so I hope that that will be in bookstores in time for Christmas before. <laughs> uh, Christmas 2023. Uh, 20 yeah. Huh? Christmas twenty twenty three. Hopefully that's what everyone will be shooting for. Well, I hope to get it and I hope to ask all the people who I've had you uh, I've had Fred Fox, I've had Logan, just to autograph, I'll send I'll I'll pay the shipping, just send it, boom, right autograph it. Cause the first show I remember watching is an episode of Happy Days as a kid. Really? Because because of my uncle, no, because it's the one where Fonzie has Richie um, watch his girlfriend, and then they go and she's trying it and she's trying to like tell Fonzie that I'm not your property, so she's right. she, she tries to get yeah, Richie yeah, to make yeah, out with her. Watch her and he ends up he ends up diddling her, and uh, <laughs> and, and, and 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 Fonzie was very disappointed in him. And I remember. But, uh, because it's crazy what you remember. It was a Happy Days again, which was a syndicated, what they called it when Happy Days was still on. Right. And those days, you couldn't syndicate a show until after it had finished its run under its original name. So thus, you had Andy of Mayberry. Uh, you, you had uh, uh, Happy Days uh, again. Uh, uh, what was Laverne and Shirley and Friends? Right. <laughs> I saw Laverne DeFazio and Shirley Feeney. Yeah, yes. And and then the Bonanza was called Ponderosa. Ah. <laughs> and Lassie was called Timmy's Dog. <laughs> or no, Jeff's Collie, that's what it was. Right. Jeff's Collie, yes. Yes, that was a very interesting time in, in syndication. Now the syndication market's dying. What I what I love about that episode, by the way, getting back to that one episode, is that is when uh Lori Beth asks him if he's in a fraternity. Oh, mom and papa sister. Very that's nice. one of the great that's one of the greatest jokes. I, I got I got off I got so so yes, in the library, Richie, there was one uh, uh, a couple of girls that we had to cut for length, you know, who who uh, who we approached before her. And originally I gave her I gave her uh, my sister's name, Jennifer Ellen. Uh, and uh, somehow somebody on the set had, uh, had a uh, uh, a Lori Lori Beth 
or something. So they changed it there, much to my chagrin. Um, and 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 so when they meet, meet they're talking, and 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 she says to him, "Are you in a fraternity?" And he kind of uh, ducks his head down, hides hides under under his palm, and and he goes, "Mama, Papa, sister," which was uh, not in the script. That was a joke by Bobby Hoffman. Uh, just threw it out there during rehearsals. Um, he was the dialogue coach then, and shortly thereafter would become uh, Happy Days casting director uh, throughout the rest of the run, and uh, a key contributor in the series and a valued collaborator to everyone there. So I now, now here's the thing. I so she's in my script, right? So I should get character money, but somehow I didn't know that. But Gary said, Ah, here's a character. We're gonna make give my girlfriend. I'm going to write a character sketch. I take the money. Okay. <laughs> I, you learn from the best. <laughs> and that is my favorite joke in the history of, of Happy Days. Well, I think there's better than that. But uh, well, you're, you're entitled to your favorites. It, it's, right. It was a great experience. You know, and and, and it, was, it was, I think it aired. I think it aired immediately after the week we jumped the shark. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> to kick off the season and, and it was a great move. They were out of high school. We had some new ground to plow and, and it gave Richie an opportunity to grow up quite a bit and, and alter his relationship to make it more of one of equals between him and, and, and the Fonz. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And another favorite episode of mine is Stolen Melodies. And <laughs> Fred Fox is, is, is really funny in that episode. It's Freddie and the Red Hots. Uh, uh, this is the show where uh, uh, Leather Tuscadero, Susie Quattro, who, who did nine episodes of, of the series, uh, uh, our research, uh, I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't remember that many. Uh, a couple of them came at right after I, I left the show, though, which might be why. Uh, but anyways, she was going on a version of uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and, and their, their song was stolen by another act meaning Freddie and the Red Hots. And so they had to come to play on the show. And of course, uh, we started a national dance craze with Do the Fonzie. And uh, uh, I did not, I, although I have written since uh, uh, most of them with Fred Fox, um, musical numbers for, for shows, for musical episodes and things. Um, but I did not write that song. I believe Freddie wrote, um, uh, uh, you make me happy. I admit that it's true. That's why I wouldn't lie to you. Just one more thing before I go out the door. Oh, baby, baby, I can't stand you no more. Can't stand you, stand you no more. Uh, Fred wrote that. I did not write Do the Fonzie, in which Henry gave one of his more convincing uh, 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 dance numbers. Uh, at, at, you know, with the, at, and it had tremendous energy. It was fun. Uh, it was well edited. Uh, the music was good. We had a great music department uh, in, in those days, and and, uh, and it rocked. Uh, and it was fun. It was a light entertainment compared to a lot of the happy days. I did. Uh, I think a lot of the ones I did and the ones I did with Fred had more serious overtones, more human uh, uh, relationship dependent than 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 goofy <laughs> dependent. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, the ones that come to mind, you know, 
uh, especially the, the show where Joni and Chachi, uh, uh, right before they went off to launch their series, the second season, you know, came home and Howard said, that's it, you're not going back, uh, and, and set up a, a real war. And, and it was the impact of, of the fact that it really led to Aaron leaving the show that she had literally grown up on. Um, you know, there were tears in front of the camera and there were a lot of tears behind the sets as well. You know, it felt like they were losing their daughter, even though she was just moving to stage 23 <laughs> from 19. Uh, it was, it was um, good for Al Molinero. He got two shows. Well, well, except the, the last season after Joni and Chachi was canceled, he only made uh, three appearances. And I think two of them were his uh, father, Del Vecchio, his twin brother. Say, I have a lot of dog in that's scratching on the door. It'll ruin your audience. I want to ask you about the last episode, actually. There, there's, a, there's only a couple of things in TV that actually that choke me up. But yeah. th- when they tell uh, in front of in front of Tom Bosley, when they tell him that they didn't give the kid to Fonzie because those are the rules, and then. Tom Bosley gives that impassioned play that, you know, the hell with your rules. And Fonzie's a great guy. Because if you remember in the first couple of seasons, he hated Fonzie. And then you he bring it. He, 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 he held him up. You know, I mean, he was, you know, he, believe me, he wanted the silver when Fonzie came over for the first time for Christmas, you know. <laughs> right. But no, they, they, you know, like I said, they, they were a family on and off the screen. And relationships evolve on shows and that arc uh, was just perfect yeah. how it ended well, there, was, there was a lot of wonderful stuff in in welcome home and mm-hmm. in the finale um yeah and you know there, there's a beautiful speech uh that uh with richie saying goodbye to fonzie when he leaves for the last time the stage this was the 250th 249th and 250th show it was welcome home uh, of happy days. Ron Howard and Don Most had been gone for four years. Uh, their contract, their seven-year contracts were up. Ron chose uh, not to renew, but to uh, begin his career as a director uh, with an exclusive deal at NBC. And as soon as that was over, he expected expressed desire to come home. And we did our best to fulfill that. Donnie was happy to, to come as well. Laura, uh, Linda Goodfriend uh, came back and uh, and it was about Richie post army uh, uh, going off to Hollywood uh, in, in a, to kind of mirror Ron's career, rather than take the job that he had been always pining for that his father had set up for him, uh, working on the Milwaukee Journal. And and when Richie finally leaves and he says goodbye to his friend and mentor, uh, you know he has a beautiful speech uh, about how do I say goodbye to the person who's been everything to you. And, stuff and, and um there, there were terrific moments uh, th- throughout but but that one was a sp- we followed that up with a few weeks of kind of it seemed very much like welcome home was the end of the show <laughs> and yet we had five more to do that year and the next couple of weeks we just kind of went through the paces the shows were okay you know this is hard to do a really bad happy days at that point uh uh we avoided it like the play but uh, finally, the last two-parter, uh, uh, which which was uh, what was that called? Passages. <laughs> Passages, Passages, part one and two. 
which uh, Fred and I wrote uh, the first half hour, and we wrote the second half hour with Bill Bickley and Michael Warren, who are uh, the longest serving uh, writers in the history uh, of the show and deserve uh, to be part of that as well. And and uh, Fonzie, yes, Fonzie adopted uh, a, a little boy who in real life was uh, would be the brother of the kid who was uh, uh, Michael Oliver, who was the star of my first film, Problem Child, and who on the first Problem Child, they, they had a lot of trouble with, but I didn't have any trouble because we were all friends. <laughs> and let's see, what else? Joni and Chachi ended their seesaw six, six season <laughs> romance by finally getting married. And that was very sweet and emotional. And we ended the show. I don't know, if, you know, I hope it hasn't been cut for syndication. But uh, uh, we ended the show with, uh, with Tom Bosley uh, uh, saying a, a, a piece that was primarily written by Lowell Gans, uh, if the truth be known, about how, you know, he's just an average man and, and he's, they, him and Marion have done the very best they could to raise their children and here they are as adults and parents of their own and see their friends flourish and that's all that people could ask for. And then in a very unusual move, he raised his glass and turned to the camera, to the audience, and said to the audience, to happy days. And that was, uh, then we dissolved into a uh, beautiful montage to Elvis Presley's memories of uh, a lot of warm moments from the series. And, uh, you know, when it faded out the last time, I don't think I ever cried <laughs> as I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I love how he says we had two kids. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, but, you know, Chuck was an Ill, ill-formed character. And when Fonzie came around, he became Richie's big brother. He didn't need a real big brother. Right. And uh, although Tom and Marion always were upset about it, you know, <laughs> for some reason, uh, because, you, you know, three actors, nobody really could do much with it. So there really wasn't much there. So let's move. Let's flash forward <laughs> from 1982. <laughs> Beethoven was, was a, is a great movie, a very funny movie. What was Charles Grodin like to work with? Um, Charles Grodin, much like the characters he played, was kind of persnickety, very smart, uh, cagey, a veteran performer. Uh, and I was very fortunate. I was not the original director of Beethoven. They were in production a couple of weeks before they discovered that there was <laughs> that the, the director had been mauled by a dog a couple of years before it got hundreds of stitches in his arm and just had a psychological block that he tried to push past for the, for the sake of making a lot of money. Uh, but he could not. Uh, and so they brought me in. Uh, I was still working on problem child two in post-production. Once I have to let the dog out, I'll pick this up. I'll make a nice plan. So I was still completing post-production on problem child two when the studio brought me in. Uh, to meet with Ivan Reitman, the producer. Beethoven was uh, written originally by John Hughes. He lost custody of the script in his divorce from Universal, uh, and they gave it to Ivan, who was their top comedy guy. And um, 
And I had a very nice meeting with him, which was followed by a meeting with Charles Grodin. Now, my wife is much smarter than I am. Charles Grodin had, at that point, two autobiographies <laughs> out. And the most recent, and in it, he detailed what he liked in directors and what he hated. <laughs> and what he liked, <laughs> how he liked to approach a scene and how he hated. And it was, and so I basically, not that, not that my values were, <laughs> were different from his really at all, but I, I had a foreknowledge of what he wanted to hear from someone like me. And I'm very lucky that um, he trusted me. And he and Ivan and Ivan's team were terribly helpful, uh, a thousand percent. And I'm still close with, with those who are still with us. <laughs> and and uh, together we made a hell of a movie. Uh, and you know, I walked into that. I read the script on a Wednesday. I started shooting on Monday. I had zero prep. I'd never met anyone in the cast, anyone in the crew. And they were, the crew was loyal to someone else, if I'm telling the truth. Uh, and I had to win a lot of people over. And, uh, and, and, and I did it by taking advantage of the things that I learned on happy days on on my years of reviving leave it to beaver where we did a lot of animal shows and, and i did you know i worked, did a lot of work with children on the bad news bears on beaver i mean on beaver there's a generation uh, of talent who, who appeared on the show everybody christina applegate shannon doherty uh oh christ what's what's his name the llama i can't remember there's there's a lot of a lot of kids who came out of there really Stephen Dorff, that's what I was trying to think of. I think one of his first jobs. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, I, I was able to apply that kind of knowledge to, to my, my years in family comedy in television. And, and, and that's what Beethoven was. It was kind of like a, you know, a, a family comedy on steroids with an amazing cast, you know, and I had Grodin, Bonnie Hunt in her first film, and David Duchovny and Patricia Heaton from Everybody Loves Him. Uh, uh, Raymond, uh, Raymond. Yeah. In, the, in the middle, you got Oliver Platt and the great Stanley Tucci and Dean Jones, who I grew up watching, you know, in Disney movies. <laughs> Jingle all the way. I love how you, how Schwarzenegger is in that, because he tried to do comedies like the one where he's the first pregnant man, but you, but in this movie, he's using sort of the Schwarzenegger persona, and it's a funny, and it's a funny movie, playing on that. Yeah, I, I hope so. You know, he when you talk about him being funny in Kindergarten Cop and stuff, it was by being stoic. You know, by by being tough, by being you know the Austrian oak, you know, impenetrable. He just. You know, you say something bad and they'll just look at you and intimidate you, right? So in, in, in Jingle All the Way, he had to do more. And, and a lot of critics at the time, and critics oh, hate, despise Jingle All the Way, which now I'll, I, I'm even comfortable saying it, it's a bit of, uh, of a cult classic yeah. uh, and, and, and still very much uh, 
in the, the zeitgeist, uh, as they say. And, you know, I mean, last year, Funko Pop put out a, a whole line uh, of, of, of Jingle All the Way Pop, Funko Pop figures. They reproduced the original uh, uh, Tiger Toys Turbo Man spinoff from the original movie. Uh, it was a good year for, for, for Jingle All the Way, which was, you know, which box office wise made so little movie that like 20 years ago. Fox wrote and said, you know, there's never going to be any any profits here, so we're not going to bother ever sending you a statement again. Uh, and and but, but going back to Arnold, I loved working with Arnold. I've had the most success, really, with actors who come from sports and athletic backgrounds. Arnold, Jackie Chan, Cuba Gooding Jr., <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, um, Tony Dow. <laughs> People who, who don't want to sit and think it through they want to they want to go out there and and let's make it happen let's see what we can build in the moment let's see what energy we can capture and 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 funnel through that camera into an audience um and 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 that way it's much more of a spontaneous feeling and, and and i exuberance of the discovery um and 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 we had we had fun, you know. Arnold Arnold, you know, was in a very uncomfortable costume for hours on end. Uh, Arnold, it was a tough movie to make because Arnold' uh, deal was twelve hours portal to portal. That means from the time he gets picked up in the morning till the time he goes home, and he has to come in. He has to he has make to makeup. Yeah. He has to he has to have makeup. He has to have his hair put on. Part of it, anyways, uh, uh, and and then he'd have to many days in the Turbo Man costume, which you know took fifty minutes to, to put on, and then you'd want to take it off during lunch, you know, um, and still do all the work in a film that required that you shoot uh, uh, an inordinate amount of setups every day to capture the the, the action. The parade scene alone was 19 days, 19 days with, with you know, 1,500 extras in boiling heat, <laughs> in, in winter garb. We had people passing out. <laughs> uh, and and Sinbad was a ball of energy and great fun. My friend Jim Belushi, Danny Woodburn uh, uh, is, is, is the elf. Uh, uh, Tony the Elf, uh, uh, an amazing, an amazing uh, uh, scene stealer, uh, shooting in Minneapolis. I've never been. So, I'm from Chicago, and I've never been so cold in my life. So when we we shot, not, when we scouted there, when we shot, it wasn't so bad. It was already spring, and you know we we had to bring in we had to bring in snow. <laughs> we had to bring in a guy from Wisconsin uh, to make snow in Minneapolis. There you go, cold cold to Newcastle, huh? But uh, a lot of fun, and you know, I was very, I was very disappointed by the, not the audience response. When I'd see the film with an audience, they they, they really did enjoy it. But the, the box office was very disappointing, and it was a setback uh, for me professionally. Uh, but uh, I am very very grateful. Unfortunately, at that point, the podcast maker decided not to record the rest of our conversation in which we discussed Problem Child and his other movies and his upcoming projects.